The American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting 2022 took place on the 3rd to the 7th of June in Chicago, Illinois. We had loads of great updates and discussions during the meeting and spoke to the presenters of some of the biggest trials. In this podcast, we're going through some of the highlights from our interviews with leading experts in prostate, bladder and kidney cancer. First, let's hear from Professor Aaron Azad of Peter McCallum Cancer Centre about the evolution of treatment for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. There's been so much change. I mean, if you go back um, I just probably just over, not just under a decade ago, um, it was really uh, just androgen deprivation therapy, um, which you know is a very effective for, for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, which is a very effective initial treatment, and it's and it's obviously trend that has to be maintained. Lowest testosterone, uh, it certainly works. You know, vast majority of men, ninety five percent of men will respond well, but the duration of benefit before men then develop metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer is um, is relatively short in many cases. And the median time is around 18 months. Um, and so we've really seen a, a dramatic transformation now in, in the management of metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer with doublet therapy becoming standard of care. Um, so uh, the addition of initially docetaxel uh, chemotherapy to ADT, um, at least in men with high volume metastatic disease is standard of care. Uh, potentially across both high volume and low volume, but certainly in high volume it is. Um, and then more recently, you know, then subsequently the androgen receptor uh, um, targeted agents or novel hormonal therapies, abiraterone, enzalutamide, that was looked at in the Arches study, uh, and apalutamide, uh, all have been shown in studies um, of doublet therapy. So ADT plus the novel hormonal therapy versus ADT in multiple studies shown to confer an overall survival benefit. So those studies all established either chemotherapy or novel hormonal therapy um, doublet uh, in, in addition to ADT as a standard of care. Um, but there's been even further progress since then. And now triplet therapy um, has come on board uh, with the PEACE-1 trial, which looked at ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone versus ADT plus docetaxel um, in men with uh, newly diagnosed high volume metastatic disease. There was an overall survival benefit. And then the Aracens trial, which was presented quite recently, showing that uh, there was a benefit to ADT, overall survival benefit to ADT plus docetaxel plus darolutamide versus ADT plus docetaxel. Um, uh, that um, study included men with both de novo and um, uh, recurrent prostate cancer after prior local therapy. Um, we don't know how many of those men actually had high volume or low volume disease. So we don't yet know exactly who needs triplet therapy, um, but there are certainly are some men who do benefit. So we've gone from single therapy with ADT in the space of less than a decade to doublet therapy becoming standard of care, now triplet therapy. So I think we're seeing, we've seen a rapid evolution in the, in the, in the disease, in the management of this disease. And, and we have many clinical trials going on in this space with other novel therapies, lutetium, PSMA, PARP inhibitors, uh, AKT inhibitors, and other agents coming through. So I think we'll only see further um, evolution of, of, of treatment in this space. And I think the important thing here is that the you know, clinical outcomes, if you look at overall survival in, in, uh, in, these, in these trials, the control arm for the, you know, um, in, in these studies, uh, the, the survival gets longer and longer each time uh, because there is more access to, to, to potent therapies across the spectrum in metastatic prostate cancer. But the experimental arm patients are obviously doing 
also doing exceedingly well. And, and we're, we're really turning in many cases, turning metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer into a, into a, almost a long-term chronic illness for many, in many cases, rather than uh, something which is an immediate death sentence. And so while we're not curing, um, you know, these men were, we are achieving long-term survival and for the most part, good quality of life for much of that time in many of these men, even though there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, that's, that's very gratifying. Professor Andrew Armstrong of Duke Cancer Centre discussed the latest updates on the Phase 3 ARCHES trial for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. We're now starting to see five-year survivals um, in the metastatic setting uh, when men are treated with these more potent therapies. And a large number of men in my practice are doing very well even past five years, um, even talking perhaps seven to 10-year survivals. And these drugs, uh, while they're life prolonging, can have real world toxicities for our patients, both on the cardiovascular system, but also on their muscular uh, skeletal system, um, as well as mental health um, and um, uh, bone health. So some notable side effects of the potent AR inhibitors, and that's Abby with prednisone, Enza, Apalutamide particularly, we see higher risks of falls and fractures. You can see loss of muscle mass and loss of cardiovascular fitness. So it's really important to emphasize exercise regularly, you know, three to five times per week, the more the better. Uh, full body, you know, CrossFit type exercises if you're able, walking if, if that's what you can do. It's very much personalized for what a patient can do. Um, and enjoys uh, so that they're doing it regularly, making it a habit so that they're not losing muscle mass, not losing bone density and putting themselves at a more vulnerable position for falls and fractures, which we do see. Uh, monitoring bone density is very important as well. And the use of bone anti-resorptive therapies can be triggered based on the development of osteopenia or osteoporosis. Um, with docetaxel, we see you know, clear side effects that can emerge, but then tend to resolve six to 12 months later. Um, and so those are reversible, which is good news for patients. Other things that we do are home blood pressure monitoring with uh, all the potent AR inhibitors that we have approved right now. We see a higher incidence of high blood pressure and a slightly higher cardiovascular risk incidence, such as atrial fibrillation. So monitoring and treating high blood pressure minimizing cardiovascular risk factors, getting men to stop smoking or to treat their hyperlipidemias is really important. And of course, exercise, getting outdoors, being active is good for mental health as well. And just paying attention to the other comorbidities really important. If, um, and partnering with either a cardiologist or a primary care doctor, if you're a urologist, uh, is really critical. A hot topic across many disease areas at ASCO this year was the use of circulating tumour cells. We spoke to Dr. Anis Hamid of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on how far away we are from implementing CTC-based approaches in prostate cancer. Well, I think we've seen in this ASCO meeting that CTCs are becoming ever increasingly important to clinical care. The, um, you know, the data in stage two colorectal cancer was very intriguing. In prostate cancer, there's been a lot of work in CTC profiling and, uh, and how that may be used as prognostic and predictive biomarkers. I think it's inevitable that we will have a suite of tests or maybe um, even a therapy 
specific suite of tests um, that will guide our management. You know, the data of prognostic and predictive biomarkers in this space is very promising. And as we incorporate lutetium-based therapies, yeah, lutetium-PSMA-based therapies into um, the, the arsenal of treatments for castration-resistant prostate cancer, I think there'll ever increasingly be the need to perform non-invasive ways of assessing response, but also predicting um, benefit and potentially identifying the patients that do benefit the most from those therapies, but also identifying the patients with less predicted um, benefit and potentially um, you know, selecting those patients for novel strategies, clinical trials, or other standard of care treatments. Another hot topic was tackling the racial disparities in cancer care and clinical trial participation. We spoke to Dr. Clara Huang of Henry Ford Health System about the use of biomarker-directed therapy for black and white men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. We were motivated by the disparities that we know exist between black and white men with prostate cancer. We know that black men are more than twice as likely to die from prostate cancer than white men. And so we just wanted to explore these disparities in the context of precision medicine for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. What we found, so we looked at two things. We used um, data from the PROMISE Consortium, which is a collaboration looking at clinical and genomic data for men with prostate cancer, and um, we compared two things. Number one, we were looking at um, the rates of actionable alterations um, between black and white men. And so what we found there is we found that uh, black men, at least in our cohort, were a bit more likely to have mismatch repair deficiency, um, and they were less likely to have P10 alteration. So we did see some differences in the genomic data that uh, from the black and white men. Um, in addition, what we found is we wanted to see what happened with that information. So with respect to treatment, we were asking whether um, there were different rates of prescribing targeted therapy for these biomarker-directed um, biomarker therapies. What we found was that black men were actually less likely to be prescribed targeted therapy than white men. Um, so I think that's pr pretty important because um, you know, it really points to something that we as an oncology community can do to reduce these disparities. The use of PSMA-targeted radioligand therapies has been a big point of discussion in the field of prostate cancer recently. We caught up with Professor Scott Tagawa from Weill Cornell Medicine on the latest updates from the Phase 3 vision trial, which investigated 177-LU-PSMA-617. So we did an analysis of adverse events uh, by exposure to the study drug lutetium PSMA 617, which was in combination with standard of care, uh, specifically looking at the, the main question of was there an increased rate of adverse events in those that had more treatment cycles. Uh, so the, the overall uh, comparison was four or less or greater than four cycles. And then we also looked at incidents per cycle. Uh, to remind people the way that the, the vision study um, was done, it was in men with progressive castration-resistant prostate cancer who had prior exposure to at least one AR pathway inhibitor and at least one taxane chemotherapy who had a positive PSMA PET per the, um, per the, the protocol, which was about 87% of those that were, um, that were tested. Um, 
there were four cycles that were delivered on, on six week intervals. And then if their patient was responding without high grade toxicity, the patient could continue for another uh, two cycles up to a total of six cycles. So um, a, a question is um, with higher exposure, is, are, are there more adverse events? Um, and the answer appeared to be no. So when we look specifically at high grade adverse events, actually that was more common in those that had less treatment, i.e. less than five cycles versus those that had five to six cycles. That may not make sense absolutely um, if, when we think about exposure, but it does make sense for any type of a treatment because those that have high grade adverse events may stop the drug earlier. And that looks to be true with lutetium PSMA 617 as well. Um, that being said, the other analysis looking at um, individual adverse events as a general rule did not demonstrate cumulative adverse events. So if someone had um, an adverse event in cycle one that was low grade, it didn't necessarily mean that if they got six cycles that it would be high grade, although the overall follow-up um, for anyone receiving this drug is generally not long because it's only been around for, for a little bit of time. Uh, the other comment was that the cycles were determined by the, the total therapy, which is a combination of standard care therapy plus lutetium PSMX 617. So cycle six, where they got a drug, uh, and then they may have continued a standard care drug, such as abiraterone or something like that, might have lasted a year. Um, so the uh, risk, the time to be at risk for adverse events was longer there. So in an analysis, we looked at cycle six just for the first six cycles, like the other cycles, and then um, beyond uh, six cycles, I'm sorry, beyond six weeks. And uh, there were more patients that had higher grade adverse events beyond six weeks, likely reflecting disease progression rather than an, an adverse event um, to the standard care therapy or lutetium PSMA 7, although we can't rule that out. Dr. Andre Gafita of the University of California in Los Angeles discussed some of the remaining questions regarding PSMA-targeted radioligand therapies. Well, I think the, those two main questions that we just discussed about, the first one would be how can we, can we select and identify the patients who are likely to respond to the treatment. I think this, once we establish some criteria, would be a game changer for the patients and you know, for the oncology community. And second, when should we discontinue the treatment? And to answer this question, we need to um, evaluate drug efficacy early during treatment and um, hopefully recipe using PSMA pad can uh, also help this and uh, benefit the patients. Moving on to kidney cancer, we caught up with Dr. Pavlos Masao of MD Anderson Cancer Center about the results of a phase 1-2 trial of citrovatinib and nivolumab in patients with clear cell renal cell carcinoma. So citravatinib is um, a multi-receptor targeting TKI, and we have a fair number of these approved already by the FDA in uh, the setting of metastatic kidney cancer. Um, the one unique aspect of citravatinib is how potently it targets a panel of receptors called the TAM receptors, so uh, Tyra 3, Axel, and Mer-TK. And those receptors, based on preclinical 
evidence um, can modify, modulate the immune microenvironment in a way that can synergize with immunotherapy. So a big component of this trial was to determine through patient correlatives, blood samples and tumor samples, what are we doing when we first give this drug alone? So what we did is we first gave this drug alone for a couple of weeks and we saw how it impacted the immune microenvironment, both in the blood and the tumors. And then what happens when we add the anti-PD-1 immunotherapy nivolumab? Is the, is the microenvironment impacted further in a way that can be beneficial? And if not, why? And so we connected these results with our efficacy and toxicity outcomes. And this is what um, we published in that manuscript in Science Translational Medicine. Another big component of that manuscript was to determine, first of all, whether citravatinib can be safely added to nivolumab. And we found that it can. But the, an interesting and unique aspect of that trial is how we determine that. So usually we determine the dose of a drug just by looking at its toxicity. But connecting to what I mentioned before about patient values and goals, instead of just looking at toxicity, we integrated the trade-off between toxicity, side effects, and benefit outcomes. Like how much does the tumor shrink, for example, or how much longer do you stay on this drug with PFS. And as an additional third dimension uniquely, to make our final dose recommendation, we actually incorporated patient quality of life. And so using these three dimensions, we finally came up with a dose that we believed had the optimal balance between toxicity, efficacy, and patient quality of life. We also discussed what the key unmet needs in kidney cancer currently are. So I think that um, a key message that both in this uh, meeting um, this year and throughout in the past few years is that luckily um, our treatment options um, for kidney cancer are expanding. And that's a beautiful thing to see. Our patients are surviving longer, they have better quality of life and, and all of these aspects. And so it's a beautiful problem to have right now. Um, how do we choose which therapies. So when we used to have, you know, barely one therapy, it was an easier choice, but it, the outcomes weren't as great. Now we have way more treatment options and the question becomes, how do we choose? And even another key thing that is happening now in oncology, both in kidney cancer, and we're seeing that with the adjuvant therapies, but also in other cancers, bladder, prostate for sure, breast cancer, is our endpoints. What are we interested in? For example, if we're interested in prolonging patient survival, what we call the overall survival outcome, one of the things that is happening is that it is becoming harder and harder to properly estimate the impact of our therapies on that outcome. So that means that we have to evolve our methodology the way we analyze the data, our trial design, 
time and even our concepts of what overall survival is to be able to properly take this overall survival outcome and bring it to the clinic and be able to confidently say to a patient, if I give you one drug, it will likely prolong your life by this amount versus if I don't. One of the big trials for bladder cancer this year was the Javelin Bladder 100 study. We heard from Dr. Joaquin Belmont of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on this study of Avelumab maintenance therapy for patients with bladder cancer. We have done several uh, super-analyses uh, of, uh, of the patient's uh, characteristics and uh, different treatments received. We have seen that there is no difference if the patients have been receiving uh, cisplatinum gemcitabine or carboplatinum gemcitabine. And what I'm presenting at, at this ASCO meeting is what the patients receive uh, in, in, the, in the arm of uh, maintenance of LMAP, the subsequent therapies, uh, meaning um, what to do uh, in, after a, a patient on LMAP maintenance uh, progress or stop therapy. In fact, there were 60% of the patients that received subsequent uh, therapy that could be in either um, chemotherapy or uh, immunotherapy or others. And in between others, we could see patients that receive uh, benflunin, um, uh, receive uh, infortumab bedotin, or either uh, different types of patients. So what was seen is that despite uh, whatever subsequent therapy the patients received, the benefit of maintenance of Belomab was observed. So there was no uh, difference between uh, when comparing patients that receive uh, chemotherapy versus uh, patients receiving uh, infortumab bedotin. Even the number of patients is limited. So and we need to do much more exploratory analysis on, on, on that. So presently, um, there is uh, an unmet medical, medical need on what needs to be done in patients that fail a velumab, meaning after maintenance, what to do next. We assume that infortumab bedotin might be uh, good because uh, you are um, giving EB in third line after chemotherapy and, and immunotherapy, but there is no data, as mentioned. In this analysis, that is, it was a post-hoc analysis. This was not in the clinical trial design per se, so this data was collected. We uh, present the, the median survival of patients that receive, again, chemotherapy with a median survival of 22 months uh, compared to patients that receive other type of agents that is a median survival of 19 months. So we cannot do comparisons, uh, and the important message here is that Avelumab maintenance was seen benefiting all these different subgroup of patients, whatever they receive as subsequent therapy. The Javelin 100 uh, trial uh, was a trial conducted um, as first-line therapy, that in fact it was first-line therapy connected to maintenance therapy. Patients who um, um, had bladder cancer, metastatic, locally advanced, that were receiving cisplatin-based uh, chemotherapy, either cisplatin gemcitabine or carboplatin gemcitabine, if they did not progress, they were like randomized after four, six cycles uh, to receive uh, a Belumab maintenance plus best supportive care uh, or best supportive care alone. And this uh, happened in between four, 10 weeks after completing the four, six cycles of uh, chemotherapy. The main point was overall survival, and um, uh, the, the results of this trial were published in the New England Journal in uh, 2020, where for the first time um, giving maintenance of Elumab in patients that did not progress to first-line chemotherapy, a survival benefit was observed. The median difference in, uh, in, in, in survival was uh, seven months in patients comparing Elumab maintenance versus uh, best supportive care. 
Finally, we heard from Professor Rob Jones of the University of Glasgow about the final results from the cabazantinib arm of the Atlantis trial. Uh, I've been presenting some results from the Atlantis platform trial. So this is a UK-wide um, precision medicine platform trial uh, in the maintenance setting. So this is patients who are enrolled during first-line chemotherapy for advanced urothelial cancer. During the chemotherapy, the patients submit archival tissue for biomarker testing. Then at the end of chemotherapy, if there's still if there's ongoing clinical benefit, that is, stable disease, partial response, complete response at the end of chemotherapy. They're then offered randomization into one of a suite of different clinical trials depending on their biomarker status. So we presented the results of um, the Rucaparib randomization at the GU meeting earlier in 2022, uh, and that was a positive signal. Um, we also, some patients were, were directed towards an, a randomization between enzalutamide or placebo if they are AR positive. Uh, we have haven't shown the results of that yet. This was actually the rest of them. So these are patients who were negative for those biomarkers and they were randomized to receive either cabazantinib or placebo. So cabazantinib is an oral multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, principally vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, but also some other targets which are probably relevant in, in, in urothelial cancer. And they continue with that until radiographic progression. It's a signal searching study. Um, it's a negative study. <laughs> Primary endpoint is progression-free survival, uh, and there was really no difference between the two arms of the trial, similarly for overall survival. Uh, Toxicity-wise, and this is a drug which is widely used, into the, particularly in the treatment of renal cancer, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing new to see. It's a drug which was generally well-tolerated, albeit with quite a, a significant number of dose reductions to get tolerability. Um, so, uh, obviously, the trial is that, that niche is no longer appropriate because the standard of care has moved on in that in, in that setting so the trial is actually now now closed um, because it's no longer really ethical to randomize patients against placebo in that setting we also heard from professor jones about the main areas of unmet need in metastatic bladder cancer metastatic urothelial carcinoma is still unfortunately for nearly all patients still a life a, a, a life-threatening disease, a, a survival-defining disease. Um, and uh, although patients who benefit from immunotherapy, patients who respond, the duration of that response is generally quite long, um, most of them still relapse, and so there's still a need for therapies after completion of immunotherapy. And of course, there's still a large group of patients who don't respond to even to chemotherapy, and, a, and an even larger group who don't respond to immunotherapy. So there's still a, a high unmet need. Um, and the good news is there are already treatments coming through in that post-chemo, post-immunotherapy setting. Uh, we've already seen positive survival data for Enfortumab Vidotin. That's a drug which is now has marketing authorization in Europe. It's not widely available yet in the UK, on the, hasn't, hasn't been reimbursed yet. Uh, and we're seeing other drugs like Sacatizumab Govatik and another antibody drug conjugate coming through. I think the other area that's still really important, of course, is what we set out to try and um, address with the Atlantic trial is actually, you know, are we doing the right thing by treating all the patients the same? You know, where, where, where's the concept of precision medicine in urothelial cancer? Apart from some, in my view, rather marginal claims about pdl one status, we don't really have any molecular predictors uh, in current use. 
Um, now, obviously, there are fibroblast growth factor receptor inhibitors, which are have marketing authorization in North America, not yet in Europe. Um, of course, we're still waiting for results of phase three trials there. So that's for patients with um, genetic aberrations, somatic genetic aberrations in the fibroblast growth factor receptor pathway. Um, uh, so we do, we really do need to try and identify patients who maybe are not going to benefit from conventional approaches and might be better off with targeted approaches um, and to try and really understand the, the heterogeneity of the population better. That wraps up our highlights in genitourinary cancer from ASCO 2022. We have loads more interviews from experts in GU cancer and beyond on vjoncology.com, so why not explore? If you enjoyed this podcast, then you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates in oncology. Stay tuned for more podcasts covering the highlights from ASCO 2022.